So short, shameless bit of self-promotion. Ideal, some of you know that I've been working uh, for about three years now on a commentary on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, for the William B. Eerdmans Publishing Company. And I, I, I really strongly think, after, after being told to rewrite it like 10 times by my editors, I really think that uh, I turned it in for reels on Friday and I might actually be completely finished. So yay for me. And uh, make, sure to, make sure to purchase a lot of copies when it comes out later this year. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a really, it makes a really great gift for your friends and family. So. <laughs> and so, so I just thought it would be fun to do a, a, just a one-off um, on on some of the stuff that we, that I've I've looked at over the last several years. And and so to to kind of get us in the in in the zone here, uh, everyone is familiar with the 1991 film What About Bob? Yes. What about Bob? Yeah, if you if you know this movie, please raise your hand because if you don't, I have to shame you publicly. Okay, if you haven't seen What About Bob, it's a it's a Bill Murray classic, 1991, and uh, in this film, um, Dr. Leo Marvin, played by Richard Dreyfuss, I believe, is a really really successful uh, psychiatrist, and he's so successful, in fact, that he's he's got a book coming out, and it's going to be featured on uh, Good Morning America, and so his life is firing on all cylinders. He's rich, he's famous, um, and and he's he's really killing it. And what uh, what happens though is that is that uh, a, a new patient comes into his life, Bob, played by Bill Murray, and Bob is uh, he's he's got every type of mental illness, so like all of them. So he he has Tourette syndrome. He's uh, he's codependent. He's a little bit schizophrenic. He's got everything. He's he's a, he's kind of a mess. But Dr. Marvin knows he can handle it because Dr. Leo Marvin is the greatest psychiatrist who's ever lived. And so he welcomes Bob's, uh, Bob's patronage and, he, and he's determined to fix Bob. But first he's got to go on vacation. Well, Bob doesn't want him to go on vacation. Bob wants to stay close to Leo because Leo makes him feel safe. And so over the course of the film, we find that Bob not only just follows Dr. Marvin, but he inserts himself into every part of Dr. Marvin's life. And what's, what makes the movie so funny is that we as, uh, as, as an audience know that Bob is a total psycho. And yet everyone in Dr. Marvin's life loves him. And they welcome him in. They think he's amazing. And Marvin's going crazy. He's like, can't you guys see this guy's a fruit bat? We got to get rid of him. Everyone's like, what? Bob's so wonderful. He's polite. He's kind. He's funny. He's, in fact, he's a better person than you are, Leo. Like, like Bob becomes more popular with, with Marvin's kids than Marvin is. More popular with his wife than he is. At the end of the movie, Bob ends up marrying his sister, which makes Marvin go so crazy that he himself has to be committed to an insane asylum. Now, it's fun for us, but if you, if you look at it from Marvin's perspective, something really bad has happened. A wolf has entered into his life. This is not just like a wolf that, like, you know, you kind of deal with it and you move on. This is somebody who's going to totally and completely train wreck everything about Marvin's life. There, we all have toxic people in our lives. I get that. It's inevitable. Like, but, but there, there is a type of person who's beyond toxic, who's absolutely, completely destroys your world. What's interesting is that in the New Testament times, the same thing was happening. And what's going to be fun today is I think we're going to see uh, uh, how to spot a wolf in our community. So during this uh, during the sermon, be sure to be checking out the people beside you in the pews to see if they're the problem. 
because uh, if so, we have some practical solutions for how to get rid of them. And then also, also I think that, that we're going to be able to see that this actually kind of impacts every sphere of life. So let's take a look um, at the text. This is Second John uh, 7 to, to, to 11. This is my translation. Um, it's designed to be really readable in the 21st century. Uh, but if I have to point some stuff out, I will. Look, John says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. They don't acknowledge Jesus Christ coming as a real human being. This is the sort of person who's a deceiver, an antichrist. Check yourselves that you don't lose what we've worked for, but instead receive your full reward. Anyone who who runs off ahead and doesn't stay with Christ's teaching doesn't have God. The one who stays with that teaching has both father and son. Don't invite anyone who comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching into your home or even greet them. For anyone who greets them partners in their evil work. Just want to jump uh, in, into some parts of the text here. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Well, what's gone on in the, the John's writing? Second John's probably written around eighty ninety um, A.D. So very very end of the first century. John is at this point the last surviving uh, apostle, someone who actually knew Jesus and lived with him. And what, what's interesting, what's happened, is that John has been a part of communities. He he's kind of oversees a bunch of little house churches in, in what's uh, modern-day uh, Turkey, Asia Minor, or F, the area surrounding Ephesus. Um, you can actually go and see. Uh, I, when I was younger, I went to Ephesus, and you can actually see the baptismal that uh, John, or at least um, people who descended spiritually from John, actually used, which is pretty cool. Um, well, the, the idea, though, is that there's all these different churches around, and, and and they're kind of they're kind of taking off like it, people are becoming christians like people left and right are becoming christians and 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 what what john says is that as that's happening the enemy has a counter plan a plan to stop what god is doing and so deceivers have gone out in the world the enemy has sent out people whether they know it or not they are animated by the enemy's way of thinking and they are going out and they are going to wreck the church and so John says, this is the sort of person who is a deceiver and antichrist. Antichrist is a loaded term. Uh, John usually uses this to mean somebody who's just fundamentally opposed to what Jesus is up to. And as a dispensationalist church, we believe that in the end, there will, at the end of history, there really will be one dude who is the full and complete, like, absolute antithesis of Jesus. This is like, th- these people are just prefigurations of that guy. And they're going to go out in the church. They're always going to be trying to wreck the church. They're going to be deceiving and lying. And they're going to be slipping in little wolves in sheep's clothing. This is ecchi peripherium. You guys familiar with the ecchi peripherium? It's a classic. It's a a tetra, tetra toad. You know what that is? I don't either. I uh, googled this, so I, I, I feel sort of confident. You can see that this is a this is it's about a one and a half millimeters long. It's like a little it's like a little very very small worm. The, uh, the this tetra toad and and it, it, it's it's got a, a a person or an animal that it loves. And uh, that's the next slide. This is a water snail. Now, you may be able to see it on the screen, but if you look close, if you look at the center of that water snail, you can see like this little rectangle. That's a, that's a, that's a tetratode. That's a, the ecchi peripherium. And the ecchi peripherium is, it's a parasite. Uh, it, 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 it gloms on to water snails and then, and then sucks their life out and eats them from the outside to the inside. 
Well, parasites are pretty common, but uh, in 2014, a bunch of British scientists, they did, they did a study where what they did is they wanted to know if this little one and a half millimeter worm uh, is choosy. They wanted to know if this little tiny worm kind of said, well, that's a snail I want to eat, and that's one that I don't want to eat. So there's this cool uh, experiment where they, they had a whole bunch of water snails that were super healthy. And then they introduced into the ecosystem uh, variously weakened versions of these water snails. So some water snails were exposed to radiation, some were denied food. But in, in every case, these were water snails that weren't big, fat, beefy, juicy water snails. And this little tiny one and a half milliliter, millimeter uh, worm, time and again, only went after the big, fat, juicy worms. It said no, it passed on the weakened worms, even though they were easier to catch, because they're easier to get to. But they look at that and they're like, ah, that worm's no good, or that snail's no good. I want to get a big, fat, juicy snail, and I want to suck it dry. The reason the scientists did this is because they've noticed that parasites um, all throughout the animal kingdom have something in common. And that is parasites prefer healthy, fit hosts, thriving hosts. Why? The ride is longer. There's more to... You don't just, it's not like, you know, you're there for a week and the thing dies, you got to move on. No, you found, you found somebody that's going to feed you for years to come. And so at every level of the animal kingdom, with varying degrees of cognitive ability, these animals have found ways to prefer healthy, thriving hosts. Now John says the enemy has sent many deceivers out into the world. These deceivers, it turns out, are a lot like etchy peripheriums. They don't want to go to sappy, scrawny, ugly, tiny, weak, ineffective churches. They go to thriving churches. They go to places where things are happening. Why? Because their job is to derail God's mission, right? So they're going to the places where the mission's being fulfilled. If you're an antichrist, you don't care if there's a church that isn't doing anything. Like, you're like, oh, good for you. You keep doing nothing. That's awesome. If you're an antichrist, what you're about is stopping God's work, his redemption going throughout the world, the imposition of his kingdom over and on top of your kingdom. You don't want that. That's the first thing you know she's. Wolves are attracted to thriving communities. And we know this isn't just true in churches. I know a lot of people here, especially those of you in the workplace. I've heard so many stories over the years about how a, a workplace environment, like a uh, the the kind of the, the the place where the synergy is happening, like there's this team of people, and everyone's got a job, and everyone's on a mission, and everyone's feeling it, and, and you're a part of this incredible team, and stuff's happening. You're selling so many widgets, you don't know what to do with yourself, and then over time, you notice that some people start coming in. And they're like, I know that we're supposed to be selling widgets. But I think the coffee's terrible. Can we focus on getting better coffee in here? Oh, I know we're supposed to be focusing on widgets, but I was wondering if we could also start focusing on something else. Or I know that we're supposed to be focusing on widgets, but I don't feel good and I'm and, and I don't like working here and I'm gonna make a I'm gonna I'm gonna cry about it. 
Well, those people, they're not attracted to dying, weak, terrible companies because they're not interested in working and they're certainly not interested in selling widgets. They're interested in sucking your resources dry so that they can feast on your work. You may have noticed it in your families. Things were great. I think this is happening to the royal family in England right now. Have you heard about this, Meghan Markle? Apparently she's a, uh, an actress. And she's also used to be like a princess. She got married to one of the kids of somebody. And anyway, she, she's super self-involved. And so like now Harry is no longer a prince or something. That he, they quit being princes and princesses. They had this great thing. The royal family had a great thing going. Everything was awesome. And then somebody came in and changed the dynamics. Interesting that she went after a prince of England. She could have married Ryan Gates in the back there, right? She could have, but she, I mean, and I wonder, I wonder why. Is it because Ryan Gates has no prospects? And she looks at him and she's like, that guy's useless. He's, I don't want that. But whoa, all the money in England? Sign me up. Let's go back to the text. They don't acknowledge Jesus Christ coming as a real human being. Uh, older translations, will, it's Ensarchy here, in the flesh. They, they, don't, they don't recognize or don't acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh. In John's world, there were a lot of people who believed in Jesus, but they didn't think he was a human being. They thought he was like a ghost that kind of wandered through and looked like a human being. Now, that's kind of weird to us. Uh, but the reason this was such a problem in, in that world was if, if Jesus wasn't a human being, how could he save us? Right? If he wasn't human, how could he represent us before God? We're human beings. If he's a ghost, we don't need a ghost to replace us. We need a human being to replace us. We need somebody who can actually bear our sins and not just seem like it. That was a really big deal in the ancient world. Today, the, it's the opposite, right? There are a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, Jesus, he was a great guy. Definitely not God, but super cool dude. But the thing is, if Jesus isn't God, he can't unite us to God. He can't bring the divine nature down to us. We can't be saved if Jesus isn't God. Anyone who runs off ahead and doesn't stay with Christ's teaching doesn't have God. Uh, the, the Greek there, it's, I've kind of loosely translated run off ahead, but it's really more like um, uh, gets ahead of or gets beyond Christ's teaching doesn't have God. And the idea is that people were coming in and they were like, oh, I've got some new information about Jesus to share with you. And they're like, well, this is, we don't, where, where is this coming from? John didn't say that. And he knew the guy. And they're like, oh, no, no, don't pay attention to John. Pay attention to me. I've got awesome information. He was like this and it was like that. And the people were like, wait, this doesn't, this doesn't jive with everything that we've known. And then the, it's something about wolves where, you know, wolves aren't interested in leaving things the way they are. Some of you, not everyone here, there's, we've got some millennials, some younger millennials, and we've got some, what are they now, Gen Zers? What are you guys? Do you know? Have we named your generation yet? What are you? You're the best. Okay, the best generation. I'm pretty sure that's what, those are the guys that stormed Normandy, but Okay. <laughs> well, we'll give it. You have you got time. All right. So there, you know we got the the millennials, younger millennials, and then the best generation. And those two generations do not remember what it was like when uh, when the towers fell uh, in at nine eleven. 
I, I do. I recall I was a junior in college and um, David Waker banging on my door on the East Coast saying, Tom, Tom, we're going to war. So we all gathered in uh, the one room, one dorm room on our uh, floor that had a TV. It was like 13 inches. And so, you know, the dark ages. And we watched... It was crazy. Like, we were glued, and we, we saw the second plane hit, and we watched the, the towers fall. And that was like, it was this, what moment? Everyone was like, okay, well, we're going to go to war. Uh, everyone was talking about for weeks and months joining up. A number of my friends uh, did. They joined ROTC at our school um, and served. Um, and, 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 and that moment kind of, it kind of changed our generation's way of seeing, seeing and thinking. And so in 2003, if you'll recall, we invaded Iraq. And I remember in 2003 being like, yeah, let's do it. Why? Why was I in favor of invading Iraq? Does anyone know in 2003? Weapons of mass destruction, that's correct. Uh, I have a picture here of the WMDs. Uh, WMDs, we were told, uh, our, uh, the, the CIA, which is apparently not very good at gathering intelligence, uh, convinced the world that Saddam Hussein was in possession of a whole lot of weapons of mass destruction. And maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. Uh, there are some people who think that Saddam, like, shipped them off before we invaded or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, within a month of the invasion of Iraq, we knew that we weren't going to find any WMDs. And that's when we stopped the war and then we came home, right? Because the point of the war was, to, was to, to, to stop terrorists from attacking America with weapons of mass destruction. So everyone dusted themselves off. We came home. We moved on. <laughs> nope. So once we knew there was no weapons of mass destruction, why were we in Iraq? Does anyone remember? No, uh, almost. We're, yeah, we're going to do that in a second. But first, regime change. Okay, regime change. I got a picture here of Saddam being toppled. Uh, now, I was so excited when this happened because Saddam was definitely a, he was a human animal. He was garbage. He tortured, murdered his own people. And I was very, very happy to see the man die and very happy to see his uh, regime overthrown. But, you're correct, just destroying a regime doesn't necessarily make things any better. And so there's no weapons of mass destruction. Saddam's gone. But now, now we're involved in nation building, right? And uh, for those of you who remember the beginning of 2005, you remember this, these pictures? I got one up here, these pictures. What an, that was an awesome day. That was a pretty cool day. Not that one. No, that was a bad day. Uh, this is the good day. It was when uh, the, the, the very first democratic election in Iraq, um, in anyone's memory, maybe ever, and it was this moment where it was like, wow, you know, this is an amazing possibility. Maybe this country is going to be able to enjoy the blessings of freedom that we in the United States have, have enjoyed. And this is a really, really exciting moment. But things didn't work out. At the time, not a very many Americans understood the, the tribal hatreds between the Sunnis, the Shiites, um, and, the, and the Kurdish ethnic minorities. And, and, and pretty soon what had happened was just crazy. No one saw this happening, but Al-Qaeda, the terrorist organization, decided to fight a proxy war and invited all the terrorists in the world to come into Iraq and attack Americans. Uh, and so... We, we were involved in nation building, but then that didn't work out. And so then we moved on to a proxy war. We're fighting um, terrorism. I got a picture of the terrorists there. And then that uh, has more or less been the story to some extent or another up until the present day. 
that's ISIS, by the way. So first it was Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was defeated. And then when Syria had a civil war, ISIS rose up and began encroaching on Iraq. And so, the, I mean, it's just been an absolute, it's been crazy. And I, I'm not here to, to say one way or another about what we should or shouldn't do in the Middle East. But I can tell you this, and I think we all have to agree, that if we can agree on one thing, it's that whatever we're doing in Iraq today, it has absolutely nothing to do with what we were doing in Iraq in 2003. This is called mission creep. It happens to every organization, every institution, if, it, if they last long enough. Where, you know, you go in and you have this mission, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, or just X. And then over time, other stuff kind of gets glommed on. And if you're not careful, you wake up one day and you realize whatever we were doing then is we're unrecognizable now. And again, I, I, I have no, I mean, I, I'm not here to talk about whether or not we should or shouldn't be killing terrorists in Iraq. I, I think that there's good arguments on both sides. I'm just saying that I, I, it, it's interesting to me that the, seven, the 17-year arc of where we are now versus where we were then has demonstrated that something has dramatically changed in what we think we're doing. Let's go back to the text. Look at this. Look at, look at, look at what, look at what John's concerned about. They don't acknowledge that Christ came as a human being. Okay, that's a big deal. That's like every Christian community in the history of the world has agreed with this. Jesus was a human being. This is a fundamental and essential part of Christian faith. And moreover, John's worried not just about people who are like knocking on essential, fundamental features of faith. He's also worried about people who are going to start adding a whole bunch of stuff in. Wow, we got to do this, we got to do that. And Jesus said we should more, do more like this. And he didn't say that, but let's, let's add it on. And he probably would have agreed with this. Let's throw that in too. And, and what John's thinking about is he's like, if you abandon your fundamental mission and you start adding in other stuff, very soon you are going to be completely off the rails. You're going to look nothing like you did when you started. That's the next thing in your note sheets. Wolves always want to change something fundamental about a community. A wolf doesn't want to come in to your office and, you know, change the decor. Okay? Wolves don't care about that. They might, but that's not really what they're about. There, there are plenty of people who come in to our church and are like, your church looks silly. You should do this. I'm like, well, yeah, you're probably right. But that doesn't stress me out that much. What if someone come in and they're like, yeah, man. I know that you think uh, the Bible is super trustworthy and you should stick with it, but you know how silly it is, right? You know it's got all these things that we're sort of embarrassed about. Do you think we could avoid that? Do you think we could just kind of cut that out? Because it's, it's really hurting your ability to communicate to the culture, you know? In fact, this is a deal breaker for me. If, I can't be a part of your community if you, if you want to just stick, stick right here and plant your flag here. That's crazy. Good news, friend. There's a lot of other churches you can go to.
hey, I was, you know, it's great. People can come in here. They, our church publishes our constitution online. We publish our, our statement of faith online. That's a, that's a big no-no in, uh, in, in church growth circles. Uh, because what they say is, like, if people know what you actually believe, they, uh, they won't want to come and, and, and meet you. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Wait, what are we selling? <laughs> okay. So our, our tagline, you know, Bible, grace, family. So someone comes in, they're like, oh, yeah, this whole grace thing. I mean, I'm with you, and I see where you're coming from. But really, I know that Jesus said that, and I know that, that Paul said that. But I think that we need to add some of these other things here. We need to add on some other stuff because grace just isn't enough. Grace, a lot of times grace causes people to, to you know, slack off. We need to put some, some laws and rules on their lives so that they don't get off track too much. Okay. I know a lot of places you can go where they'll run your life. Now, most people, when they come in, even if they have disagreements, they're, they're, they're going to have a different attitude, though. They're going to be like, you know, I, I'm not sure about that. That kind of confuses me, but I'm, I'm curious, and I'd like to hear more. Oh, well, welcome. I'd love to have that conversation with you. But you come in and tell me how it's going to be. I love this. Let's go back to the text. See John's solution. (laughs) Don't invite anyone who comes to you. Don't invite. He's talking about welcoming them into your house. Uh, You may know or may not know that the the sin quanon, the absolute, like one of the craziest things about the Christian community early on was how hospitable it is and was. Like they would just invite anyone in. Like you just come on in and hang out and we'll feed you and care for you. John says, stop. But then he goes to the next level. He says, don't even greet them. Don't even, the literal, literally, it's like, don't even say peace or grace to them. Don't even talk to them. Don't, if you're passing them on the street, just ignore them. Why? Because if you even greet them, if you say hi to these people, you're partnering in their evil work. This guy knew Jesus? Does that sound like Jesus? Isn't Jesus the one who's like all like lovey-dovey and he just loves snuggling people? Isn't that, isn't that how Jesus is? I mean, Jesus is like, he's just a soft, like blubbery. And he's probably like me, like, you know, no hard edges, just like squishy. John, I'm, I'm certain that that's how Jesus is because that's how he's portrayed in Hollywood. And they know what they're talking about, right? Jack, just, I'm about to show something that is going to cause you to try and say something about how great Donald Trump is. I need you to not do that, okay? Now, here's why. Uh, Jack, there are some people here who are not fans of Donald Trump. I know. I crazy, right? And for those of you who hate Donald Trump, you're fans of the burn. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Joe Biden. Joe Biden coming back, South Carolina, took it last night. Way to go, Joe. Your fans of Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, there's going to be something here that might offend you. Don't please, you know, stand up and try to make us all socialists in the next second. I hate having to make this uh, this caveat, but in the past, anytime I do something political, somebody yells. <laughs> anyway, uh, here's a picture of an immigration detention center. Stop. Are you kidding me? Wow. 
Um, it's very interesting. Imm- the, the immigration debate, and, I, and the only reason I bring this up is because I think it very much crystallizes and helps us to understand John's perspective. That's the only reason. Um, because it, it's a very present issue that is absolutely in keeping with the way John thinks. Now, um, in the, the, the current immigration issue in the United States of America, there, uh, if you're a part of the Christian left or the Christian you know, center left, the Christian center left is in favor of sanctuary cities. And the reason for this is because the Christian center left um, believes in a, that we should be compassionate first, right? And not only that, but the Christian center left and left in the United States of America also believes that there is nothing about bringing um, uh, undocumented immigrants into the United States that's going to hurt the United States, Okay. Um, there may be some small impact, but they're looking at it, and then and the Christian left is saying, wait a minute, these people are escaping, like, you know, war-torn Venezuela, you know, and, and they're making this incredible trek up to the United States of America. Like, do you think maybe we could, I don't know, show them some, some love? I mean, isn't that kind of what Jesus calls us to do, is to love people? And so as a result, they're like, I, who cares what the United States laws are? Like, let's let's take care of these people, right? Let's give them an opportunity to become Americans. Next slide. Jack, hold on. Easy. That's, uh, this is Trump. This is Trump's wall. In the United States of America, uh, the, the Christian center right and right has been generally in favor of limiting uh, illegal immigration, especially from South America, and to the extent that, well, let's build a wall. Why? Why? What was, are, are they heartless? They hate foreigners. Bunch of xenophobes. No, I think that what's going on is there's a, there's a sense that on the, on the Christian right that um, the people who are coming from South America are bringing with them a culture that could fundamentally change American culture. Right? They believe that these that the, the, these immigrants are bringing with them something that is going to hurt America, and perhaps not only that, but maybe even hurt the working class in America. Especially if undocumented immigrant, immigrants uh, don't have a lot of skills, they're gonna they're gonna take jobs and they're gonna force wages down for blue collar uh, workers in the United States of America. And so they're saying, in order to protect America, to keep America America, we need this wall. I don't know. What, what do I got to do, man? Got to gag you? Is that what I'm going to do? That's the great thing about congregational churches, man. People do whatever they want. I'm like, do this. And they're like, nah. I'm like, all right. Don't know what you're... Hey, as long as you pay me, it's fine. You do you. The reason I'm bringing this up, the reason I'm saying this is because um, I, I want us first to understand that the, the Christian right and the Christian left um, in this particular issue both, I think, can make an argument in favor of what they're about. And, and I do understand why both sides say what they say. And I don't think that one side's filled with hate and the other one's filled with love. And I don't think that one side's just naive and the other one's, you know, wise. And I, I don't think that. But I do want you to recognize this. The, the, the mentality that John has... He's like, when you know for certain that this person is going to come into your community, your life, your workplace, your whatever, this group of people, if they show up and you know that they are going to dramatically change who you are, they're going to change your identity, 
Nope. Don't even say hi. And as much as it's uh, hard to admit and feels weird as Christians, the next thing you note she is true. When the identity of the community is threatened, John says radical intolerance. In the ancient world, uh, this would have been probably a little bit suspect. But in our contemporary context, this, the idea that Christians at some point need to plant a flag and say, no, stay out. This community will not tolerate what you're saying. We're not even going to have a conversation about it. We're not even going to start. Just go. That's a pretty not popular view. And yet what's funny is, I mean, we, we all know deep down that if you value the integrity and the, the makeup and the character and the nature of any community, you have to, you got to say no to some stuff. You know, if you have somebody at your, at your job, your office, that is absolutely tanking the mission of the company, Peace. Happy trails. If your network of friends is being like dramatically, the, the nature and the character of it is being shifted, being changed because this new person's coming along and is, is co-opting and, and, and altering you as an identity, you've got to say, hey, man, no. Find another group of friends. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over uh, the, the the first four uh, Maryland of these checks. But if we could just look at that last one, um, how how can you love a wolf after spotting it? I think um, what we've gotten so far is a pretty good sense of how to spot a wolf, right? If you're looking for somebody who wants to to fundamentally change the community, that's a no. If you're looking for somebody who's not teachable, who doesn't, who's like, who's like, no, 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 it's my way or the highway. That's a no. You can spot that. The issue, though, the issue is, what do you do? How do we practically do this now as a community? How do you do it at your office? I mean, I guess your office, you just fire somebody. That's cool. Wish I could do that. Fire this whole congregation. Get a better one. Uh, what's so, so interesting, we actually, from uh, church history, we have this uh, text from Polycarp. Polycarp was, um, was John's protege. And, uh, and Polycarp uh, served under John. He learned under John. He helped bury John. And then uh, he wrote some letters that have been preserved miraculously. And it's interesting. In one of them, he quotes this text. And right after it, so he says, he says don't even say hi to these people. Absolutely. He, he con- continues that that radical intolerance. But then he says this, don't get your hopes up, but pray for them. Don't get your hopes up, but pray for them. The reason Polycarp gets this is because he understands that, that be underneath this radical intolerance, which is really uncomfortable and, and, and seems like really mean or whatever, that underneath it is love. 
that, that, that what John is, is saying is he's like, I love this congregation. I love the truth. I love Jesus so much that I don't, want to, I don't want it to be threatened. And at the same time, I love people so much that the only way we can shake them up is to say, get out of here until, unless you're ready to come back and learn. If you want to come under our authority, if you want to be humble and you want to have a conversation, well, maybe. But until then, peace, I'll pray for you. I'll pray that your heart gets softened, that you stop thinking that you have the answers, that you're going to change things, that you can go beyond Jesus' teaching, that, that you can change the, the, the teaching of the apostles. You, you stop that. Once you let go of that and come back to us from a place of humility, by all means. And so I'm going to pray that your heart gets broken. And I think that that should be kind of our approach to wolves, whether it's in the church, the workplace, family, friends. If, if there's somebody you identify as a wolf, you, you say, hey, happy trails. I'm going to pray for you. And when your heart changes, come on back. But until then, I got to protect what I love. I'm going to pray here in a second. Um, Doug, do you mind if we just... I, I went long, I'm sorry. Um, so, so a couple things. Number one, uh, we're going to start a series in Job next week, uh, leading up to Easter. I invite everyone to come. There's so much there, especially uh, if you're interested in or experiencing or afraid that you're going to experience grief, loss, tragedy, um, or you want to know how to walk through that. It's going to be a, a really great opportunity to see how God... Um, asks of us those things. So please come on back as we get ready for Easter. And then last but not least, uh, I just wanted to invite Kevin. Would you mind coming up so I could pray for you, man? Kevin, you okay? Uh, for those of you who don't know, Kevin uh, is going in for surgery for, uh, for lung cancer on, on Thursday. And as we close out, I just want to pray for you and for your family, brother. Um, so I'll pray for Kevin, then we'll roll. Gracious God, um, Thank you so much for the Akrami family and the Cheshires and their love and their, their spirit of commitment and faithfulness. I pray right now for Kevin that this surgery will be a success, that we'll have a lot more time to love and be loved by him. Give the doctors wisdom. Guide their hands. And may we see a really quick and, and full recovery. Bless Kevin, bless Manu, give her uh, peace as she goes through this orchid as well, knowing that uh, Kevin's in your hands. The end is certain, and one way, one way or another, we will all be together in your presence. Heal my brother, God. In Jesus' name, amen. With that, uh, brothers and sisters, go in peace.